Welcome to Write Now with Scrivener, where writers talk about how they work, how they develop their ideas, and how they use Scrivener, the app built for long-form writing projects. I'm your host, Kirk McElhern, author of Take Control of Scrivener. Today, I'm very happy to welcome Caitlin Munro-Howes, whose first novel, The Awoken, has come out recently. Caitlin, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. You are mainly a documentary filmmaker, and you've written a first novel. Why did you want to switch from film, nonfiction film, to fiction? I don't really see it as a switch. I think um, I will forever make, as long as they'll let me, I'll keep making documentaries. And as long as they'll let me, I'll keep writing fiction. Um, I I don't see the two as disparate as as maybe some other people. And and someone, you know, my novel is, you know, dystopian sci-fi. And I actually find documentaries and sci-fi being to be very similar. Like I think at their core, both mediums really, what they do is they're taking some relevant social issue, something that's going on, something that we're trying to grapple with as a society, and you're trying to present it in an entertaining way for a way for people to think about in a different light. So I think they actually, in both, at least what I try to do in both mediums, the goal is actually the same. The type of narrative you use in a documentary isn't that different from fiction, is it? You're still telling a story, you've still got a three-act structure, you're still dealing with characters. Absolutely. And and I, I will say I, I kind of randomly fell into documentaries. I didn't like grow up or expect, you know, coming out of film school that I was going to be making documentaries, but I absolutely fell in love with it. And nothing taught me more about storytelling than making a documentary. There, that is one of the hardest forms of storytelling because you're dealing with real people, You're which is there's an ethical thing there. You're dealing with real stories, real facts. Um, and then yet you still have to make something compelling out of it. So to have basically this like kind of very structured blank page is really, really difficult in a documentary to make that interesting. So to take everything that I've learned and how to structure a compelling story in documentaries and then move that over to my fiction writing, which I've been studying for a very long time, um, th- th- that it's, it's only helped. And, and I don't think anything could, could I, I'd suggest to any writer to go out and try and make a documentary because it's it's hard and it's fun. So you went to film school in NYU, my hometown, New York City. How was it? I think you grew up in Atlanta. And did you move to New York just to go to NYU? I did. Yeah. I have some family that lives up in the, in the Northeast. And it was always a dream of mine to to go to NYU. That was sort of like, you know, I was in kindergarten and would say, I want to go to NYU. Uh, in kindergarten. That's precocious. <laughs> yes. yes. Uh, I, I want you know, I wanted to live in the big city. And that was really that was always really fun. Um, but shortly after I, I knew that I had to move out to L.A. So I've lived in L.A. Um, or back and forth between L.A. and Atlanta ever since. Yeah, the film industry is all in L.A. And you were saying before we started, you were talking about New York publishing. And it's true that most publishing in the U.S. is centralized in New York. You don't get a lot on the other coast. It's kind of weird because the cinema and publishing, they do work together, right? But yet they're on different coasts, like they only want to meet each other at Thanksgiving. <laughs> exactly. And it's it's very interesting. And, and you know, my experience is limited, but in, in my experience, how how different those worlds are. And like you say, they play together so often. I mean, how many movies and TV shows today are based on books? But but they're so different. Like out here in LA, you go to lunch with your producer and everyone's eating like it's it's like the it's the stereotype. Everyone's eating kale salads and talking about the traffic. And then you go to New York in the middle of the day and publishers are like drinking martinis and ordering a steak. <laughs> it's just like old school New York. 
Um, so it's really, it's been really fun to sort of bounce back and forth between those two worlds and experience both, both sort of extremes of what this, what this industry can do. So the Awoken opens with a wonder, this is a great first line. I mean, this is just wonderful. I was 23 years old when I died. This is just a classic first line. This is inspired by a real event in your life though. Yes. Yeah, it was. And it's really interesting. I, I, I wrote this whole novel, not even realizing that it was, but um, but yeah, so when I was 17, I had a horrific car accident and I, and I died. Um, I was, uh, when the EMTs got to me on the scene, I had no heartbeat, uh, spoiler alert. They did bring me back to life. I, <laughs> I came back, but, uh, there was, there was many minutes. I think they said it was about 10 minutes where, um, I had no signs of life. Um, and that was obviously incredibly traumatic for me at 17 to die, at, at, and have that experience, have this experience. Everyone asked me what I saw after death. And, and it, it was this very, you know, similar to the, my main character in my book, it was this very stark nothingness. It was this like, not, not even that I didn't remember. It was, it was this like emptiness and that's sort of haunted me my whole life. And so, and so my, I used to at like parties and icebreakers, I would say that line, oh, I was 17 years old when I died. Um, <laughs> that That's literally where the inspiration for the first um, line came from. But I didn't, I didn't know that. In fact, my, my editor at, at Dutton didn't even know I was in a car accident until we were into copy edits. Um, I just never put together, even though I said it was that same line, this sounds like I was just missing something in my brain and I was, but there, there, there was just, no connection made, but that I didn't realize that that was that this was about my car accident until I read the first draft of my novel, and it was like this eureka moment. I came, I came like bursting out of my bedroom, um, and I ran over to my husband, and I was like, "This is about my death," and he was like, "Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like it's about a young girl who dies and then comes back to life." And I was like, "Oh, thanks for telling." <laughs> it's true that a lot of writers find that their subconscious comes through when they're writing. Even if you're outlining and you've gotten everything planned out, you're still, what, what's happening to your character, what they're saying, what they're doing is coming from someplace that you can't really understand. Absolutely. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think there's so much that plays into it, right? Like there were things that I knew and that I was writing about, and they are things, you know, themes in this book that I, I set out to write about. And I think it's important, right? You have your intention, but there's no way you can kind of silence that voice, um, you know, inside that says, you know, he, here's what this is, you actually have to deal with. And I think you find that with a lot of authors and a lot of filmmakers too, you see them circling the same sort of themes, the same sort of questions in their work, um, whether, you know, it's maybe starts out a little more um, on in the unconscious and then kind of makes its way to the surface. So the novel is about cryogenics. This is one of these fascinating ideas. I just think of Walt Disney, right? Walt Disney's been frozen. That's the, the sort of template of cryogenics. And it's about this young woman named Alabine or Alabine, who is Alibine. Alibine, who is frozen because she has cancer. And then she wakes up a hundred years later. Yes. Yeah. So I started becoming obsessed with cryogenics after, after my car accident, um, really any sort of life extension science. And there's a lot, it's, it's insane what, what people are doing right now. I mean, and you can hear there's like these billionaires in Silicon Valley, they've all promised that they're going to live to like at least 500 or a thousand. Um, but those aren't empty promises. Like we are getting pretty far with life extension science and it's, 
fascinating what's going on. And cryogenics is a part of that. And I think it's a really interesting part. And that was important for me is I wanted to start this book. You know, I think this, I call this book sort of light science fiction or anti-science fiction sometimes too, where I wanted to start it very much in, in a real place. And, and she does something in 2020 that any of us could do now. Any of us could call up the company called Alcor. Any of us could call that that company up and freeze our bodies. Like that's just something that we can do. We don't know how to bring people back yet, but everyone says that we will be able to soon. So I wanted to start this, you know, speculative novel in a place of something really, really true and really honest that we could do today. So you've mentioned dystopia, you've mentioned science fiction, speculative fiction. Are they all the same? Do they overlap? Is there like a Venn diagram for this? I think there's, I, I actually had to learn this too. I find that in publishing, it's actually different than in and then in, in you know TV or in Hollywood. So in Hollywood, you never, no one ever says. Uh, very few people say uh, speculative fiction. Like that's just not a word that's used. But in publishing, that's a learn that that's a word that I've had to learn. That's actually a very, um, it's a very popular word. I started calling this book science fiction, and my agent very quickly said, "I don't think we want to call it science fiction." Um, so uh, it very quickly you know, got translated into speculative. Um, I would call it science fiction because I think it, it you know, it hits all the marks. It has to do with science. It takes place in the future. But, you know, it's, it, it, I will say, if you go into it expecting, you know, something like foundation. Laser guns and, and stormtroopers. Yeah, you're not, you're not going to get that. So, so that's why I, and I, I see the differentiate, you know, how publishing has made that speculative fiction. I, I get that. That makes sense to me. Um, but yeah, Hollywood hasn't caught on to that yet. Well, I think, there's too many genres for films. They don't want as many as they do in publishing. And so the idea in publishing is that, you know, you separate fantasy from science fiction, which used to be kind of together. And the speculative is the stuff that's more for the grownups often, whereas the science fiction is kind of, you know, the Star Wars and, and stuff like that. So, but there's always been an overlap. You know, if you look back in the 60s and 70s at classic science fiction, I think speculative fiction started being used in the 70s to indicate things that are more what you're saying, starting with something real and then speculating from there. Exactly, yeah. But your novel is also a bit of a dystopia. It's not exactly like The Hunger Games, but it's kind of, there's a lot of that there. Yeah, I wanted to make sure, though, that, it you know, it wasn't um, Blade Runner, you know, crumbling, you know, cityscapes and, you know, really... Uh, people living terrible lives. I actually wanted to create a world and in the book created a world where most of the people are living good uh, and, and, you know, joyful lives. But the question that I kind of ask quite, quite quickly in the book is how, is that worth it? If some, if, if some people get treated so terribly, is this kind of utopic society, is that, is that sacrifice worth it? So early in the book, you say, Resurrecting humans signified the largest change for humanity since the dawn of time. It meant neither God nor nature decided who lived and who died. Humans did, at least to a point. If you had the money and the will, you could circumvent death itself. However, from the very first resurrection, there was a pervasive belief that those who were brought back, the awoken, were somehow tainted, no longer human. This is the key to the novel, isn't it? That these people come back and they're looked at differently. There's something wrong with them. Yeah, I wanted so so when I actually started out knowing that I wanted to write this novel about before I realized it was also about my car accident was I wanted to really explore um, 
the idea of who gets to decide what is a life and what life is worthy. And I think this is a question we're going to have to keep asking ourselves as we get further into life extension science, you know, AI, all of this stuff, we're going to have to really decide what, what determines a life. And I, I came to that question through one of my documentaries, actually, you know, I, I was making a documentary about um, at-risk transgender youth in Los Angeles. And I saw so I knew this intellectually, but and in making that documentary and getting to know these kids, I saw how much more valued my life was because based on my perceived identity versus their life. And so I wanted to explore that in our society. Why do we have this need to ostracize people who we see are as different? Why do we have this need to be like, you are part, you are me, and thus you are valuable, and they are other and they are not. So that was sort of intellectually what I went into making this book about and this telling, wanting to tell this story is exploring that. What happens if all of a sudden, you know, you grow your up your whole life and you're part of society, you're accepted. And then all of a sudden you become this, um, this othered person, this othered creature that people, you know, literally could shoot on site if they want to. Um, so that, that's absolutely the heart and the core of the book. And the people of the future are afraid that the awoken are sick because, well, if you were frozen, it's because you were sick and you were waiting for some sort of treatment that would save your life, right? Yeah, yeah. So they think they think they're sick based on what killed them. And they also think that just in death, they get this kind of contamination, that death itself contaminates them and and is sort of contagious in this world. So it's something that they're really scared of. And, and it's, again, all of this, I really like, you know, the way Margaret Atwood did for Handmaid's Tale, I really pulled from real life instances of this and, and how whenever new science comes in, whenever something happens, we get so scared of it. I mean, think of cloning, think of all of these, think of the coronavirus, all of these things that we get so scared of um, because science is scary. I mean, most of science fiction up to date has been sort of like the writer being saying, look, we have to be scared. What happens if science takes over the world? That's been most of what science fiction books have been and what the books that I grew up in and love. Um, but I kind of wanted to put that flip that and say, well, at what point do we need to start trusting science or what point, you know, where's that line where we need to start saying, okay, science can actually help us. And I don't have an answer for that, but I wanted to explore that. Did you write this during COVID lockdown? I finished it. I had actually, I wrote the part that I, so I wrote the, um, I sold this on, on like proposal basically. So I wrote the first quarter of it, the first part, um, before the lockdown, I took that out and sold it just after the lockdown. And then I finished writing it during lockdown. So obviously all of those things were, were on my mind as I was finishing this novel and refining the novel. Okay, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about how you used Scribner to write this novel. Writing a book, screenplay, or even a long article was a juggling act. You need to find the right words and the right structure, keep track of research, and refer to notes. Tailor-made for long writing projects, Scrivener is the go-to app for writers of all types. Scrivener combines a typewriter, binder, and corkboard in a single app. A project outline makes it easy to get an overview of your work and flip between sections. Refer to research alongside your writing and just drag and drop to rearrange your work. Write in any order, in sections as large or small as you like, and let Scrivener stitch it all together when you're ready to share your words with the world. With Scrivener, you'll find everything you need to start writing and keep writing. Scrivener is available for Mac, Windows, iPad, and iPhone. Download the free trial from ScrivenerApp.com. Right now with Scrivener listeners can get a 20% discount with the coupon code PODCAST. 
That's ScrivenerApp.com. Okay, so you told me when we first got in touch by email that you originally wrote this as a screenplay for a film. Then you converted it to a novel. Then you sold the rights to a TV series, and you're working on converting the novel into script for a TV series. I, I think the Scribner developers are going to be in heaven when you tell us how you did all this in Scribner. Uh, I don't. I, I honestly don't think my process could have worked unless I had Scribner. I, my brain. Uh, <laughs> I don't think my brain could have kept all that information. So yeah, it's it was quite an interesting journey. Um, that I don't think I, any anyone could ever replicate, but it was just sort of luck and chance and a lot of hard work. But so, yeah, I started, I actually started writing this just sort of as whatever, you know, as most of my ideas ever start, you know, I just open up a blank page and I start writing. Um, and then I saw a tweet. It was the first time I ever downloaded Twitter on my phone. And the first tweet that I saw was a tweet from Issa Rae. And she was promoting a initiative for underrepresented writers um, and so, and that was, you know, s- sort of, you know, obviously screenplay based. And so I had this like one pager that I just re- had just written on this idea. I submitted that I ended up winning that and getting selected. And I had all this amazing mentorship. It was this really fast, fascinating program. And then through that, it became a script and I wrote, and I wrote this, um, effectively short film, um, that we then went and filmed in London, which was, um, fantastic and a really wonderful experience. Um, and it, it really pushed me to develop the idea more, but then after that was done, I kind of met with my mentors, um, and I talked and one of them had written books before as well as, you know, screenplays and he, and we both talked about, I was like, I think I want to really write this as a book. I've never done that before, but it really feels like it needs to be a book first before I continue down this path of it as a screenplay. So I, I wrote the book always knowing that I wanted to take it back to the screen in some way. Um, so, which was both helpful. And also I had to, again, it was this learning curve where I was trying to sort of teach myself how to write a book. I'd always been an avid reader. Um, you know, books have always been such a huge part of my life, but I'd never written one. So to take what I knew from um, writing screenplays into the book but then knowing that it was going to end up back as a screenplay at some point or a teleplay at some point um, was a really interesting experience. And, and Scrivener was so helpful in that because I was able to keep both documents in the same project. And that's how my brain works. Whenever I have to either close a project and open a new one or go from one app to another, I end up on so many different tangents. So for me, that's how Scrivener basically allowed me to help to to go back and forth so easily because it was all in the same document because I had um, all of my research right next to all of my screenplay stuff next to all of my novel stuff. It all kind of coexisted together. So what is the process like? It's a different thought process to go from screen to fiction back to screenplay. In part, this is going to be a TV series, so it's episodic. So you have to think of I don't know if it's six episodes, you're really thinking of six short stories, right? Because each one has to have a beginning, middle, and an end. So what's the process to make this conversion, this translation? Well, so I, again, because I always knew that it was going back to the screen, I don't think I ever sort of lost that that sort of guiding light in my head. And I, I think I wrote the book sort of understanding, okay, this is an episode, this is an episode. But, um, but what's been really interesting is in going back to, going into television, especially, that's a very collaborative you know, way to work, you know? So I, I was alone for a long time writing this book, just me and my computer in with no lights on just me and the computer. And then I moved, I'm now back into the space where 
other people are weighing in, people have ideas. And it's, I actually, I do love that. I love that kind of energy. It's, it's what I love about making documentaries as well. That, that sort of let's bounce things off each other. So um, that's kind of where we're at in the translation process right now is, and we're starting to go into the pilot script and figure out what needs to be told in the pilot, what needs to be changed um, and, and, and how, how best to adapt it. I think for me, the most exciting thing is that just as being a part of a visual medium, I get to get outside of Alibi, my main character's head a little bit, and I get to explore these other characters a lot. So all of this work, all of these backstories that I wrote for these other characters that I got to explore less in the book because it's so tied to her perspective, um, I'm really developing that more and bringing that out more in the in the television version. One thing is if you compare a novel to a movie, the movie is never but a small part of a novel. But with a TV series, you do have that option to go long. How many episodes is this going to be? Do you know? No, we're structuring out right now for 10 um, with the option of doing 12 is what we're what we're doing right now. 30, 60, 52 minutes? Yeah, 60. Yeah, I'm aiming for 60, yeah. 60 pages um, in terms of the script or a little less. Right. But uh, yeah, so so it's fun. You, well, there will be some areas where I get to explore. There's still going to be some things that you know, don't translate exactly some things that I'm going to have to lose from the book. Um, like that bit with the big nuclear explosion. That's kind of hard to do the CGI for that. No, I'm kidding. There's no nuclear explosion. <laughs> Spoilers. I'm, no, I'm um, yeah. So, so that, that's been, that's been the fun part, you know, obviously again, being so inside someone's head, um, you know, translating that into a visual medium and, you know, you spend 400 pages with Alibine being like hearing her inner monologue, which obviously you can't do in a in a screenplay so um those are all the fun well, you can i've seen i've seen movies where there's a voiceover to give you that impression but it feels weird sometimes doesn't it because not all movies are like that exactly well i just saw a will smith movie recently that was like that with a voiceover yeah and i think voiceovers can be done really well i think sometimes when they're used as a crutch um to just explain things i that's what i try to stay away from um but and as you find out by the end of the book even her inner monologue in the whole book like the book has a has a purpose for being in that not to give anything away, but you find that out at the very end of the book. Um, so so it, that's actually a kind of a key part of the whole plot. So it's been really fun to take that and explore how to weave that in through, a, again, a visual storytelling method and, and how to bring that out in a, in a rich and dynamic way has been really, really fun. So you're a film person and you obviously had film references in your head while you were writing this. You said you didn't want it to be like Blade Runner, but you're still thinking of, you know, this is going to be like this film. Was it hard now to go from the fiction to the screenplay thinking, well, I can't make it look like that film because that would look like I'm copying? Yeah, that's always hard, right? You want to you want to be on the right side of homage and the wrong and you know, the right the right side of homage and not be on the wrong side of copying. Um, but I think I've I've sort of you know many years ago I've learned that you you're never going to be able to um, create something that's not impacted by everything that you've seen and everything that you've read. I mean, I um, I think the first line in my acknowledgments is thanking all the uh, you know previous writers that um, helped me hone my voice today. So I think for me, it's about really um, taking in those those influences and just making them your own and staying true to yourself without trying to copy them. So that there's a lot of that, you know, both, you know, and I'd say that's both on the author side, you know, books that meant so much to me growing up, as well as on the film side. Are you going to direct any of this? I don't know about directing. <laughs> Uh, that's a whole other, but I, I, I hope I, and we've been talking a lot about this. I think the directors are so important, um, in, in television, especially. Um, but, but no, I'm my, my kind of 
flag stake in the ground that I needed to, to fight for. And thankfully my agents were very happy where I was like, I want to write this, you know, being a, um, authors don't get that, especially first time authors don't get that chance. Very much. So, um, so that was something that I wanted to fight for. And luckily I found amazing partners at the studio at Keshet who, who not only want that, but are championing that and, and, and really, um, respect that in a way that I think a lot of producers uh, might not. Before we started recording, you mentioned to me how different the publishing business is from the film business, that in film, you're a little cog in this big machine and in publishing, all of a sudden you're kind of a star, right? Oh yeah. I mean, in publishing, it was, it was like a, a huge culture shock. And I had to talk to my agent many, many times who understood because he had taken a couple of filmmakers through this before. I was like, wait, really? I, I get to make the decisions. I get to be the one who decides the final words on this page. And they were like, yeah, you, that, that's, that's all you. Um, so I get, there's pros and cons to both. Cause you know, I, there was a lot of me that was kind of resistant to bringing after I was done with the book and I had this great experience with my editor and I, you know, was hearing great stuff from readers. Um, I, I sort of had this vision in my mind of like, oh, now I have to bring my sweet baby back into this like factory. That's just going to beat her. And um, luckily it has not been that, but I think that's, that's the fear, right? You know, some, a lot of stories and projects can really go through that. Um, and it's just, I think in the nature of the business, the nature of how much money's here, but I will say the positive side is it is this collaborative process. You get these amazing people to work with, you know, hopefully you get these amazing people to work with who are very smart and it's not just you alone in your room. Um, so I, I think I, and I'm, and you know, that gets even, you know, multiplied once that you get on set, right. And you have all these people whirling around you and your vision comes to life. I mean, there's no, there's nothing like having that magic. So I think there's pros and cons to both worlds, but they are incredibly different. It's like entirely different cultures. Like we were talking about just LA, you know, the Hollywood of LA versus the publishing in New York is just so, so different in the way the people exist in those different realms. You think they'd, they'd somehow come together, but they seem to live in entirely different worlds. And I think historically, They've just, they've taken two different timelines, two different paths from the beginnings. You know, publishing is obviously a lot older than filmmaking, but each one has its own traditions that they've built on rather than meeting someplace in the middle. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and, and I, we talked about this, but it's it's like as simple as like, you know, in, in LA, you go out to lunch and people are ordering salads and kombucha. And then you go out to lunch in the middle of the day in New York and people are ordering martinis and rare steaks. You know, it's just like, it's this very <laughs> different old school world versus new world. Um, and, and they work together all the time and it's really fun. So there are agents that obviously are specifically Th that are that bridge, right? That do the film, the TV adaptation. And they, they literally are a bridge between cultures and like, they don't beyond this agent. I, in my experience, they don't really talk to each other. Like my editor has never talked to my studio, but you know, my agent who does the film, the TV adaptation, they, they, they're the ones, they're the ones that talk to both sides. Um, otherwise they stay very, very separate. I like to ask my guests to recommend a book that they're reading, but for you, I want to ask you to recommend two things, a book and a science fiction film that you would recommend to our listeners. So if your film could be a TV show? It could be a TV show. Uh, I highly recommend the TV show, The Peripheral. I've been really enjoying that. I think it's just a really great and refreshing look and take at something that I think we've seen a little bit before, but it's like this really interesting take on it. Right. That's from the William Gibson novel. It's on Amazon Prime. Now, I haven't started watching it because I'd rather wait until all the episodes are out. So if I want to binge it, I have that option. Yes, yes. I understand. I, I get that. I was craving. I had just come off of um, 
uh, I just finished the uh, House of Dragon and Lord of the Rings. So I was like craving another one. So I, I, I dove into that. I feel like it's been a fantastic year this year for, uh, for fantasy and sci-fi. I mean, between that and Sandman, which I loved, I'm obsessed with the graphic novel, but I also loved the adaptation. Um, I feel like there's been a really fascinating year in TV for genre. So what about a book? A book. So I, I'm right now I'm reading Rebecca, rereading Rebecca, which I love because I'm my next book that I'm writing is a, is a gothic horror novel. So I wanted to reread Rebecca and it's fantastic. So if you haven't read Rebecca, read Rebecca, but a new book, I would say, um, Recently, I just finished uh, Sea of Tranquility by Emily St. John Mandel, and I I really um, I really enjoyed that too. I love her writing. Her writing is just so it kind of it's both it lulls you into this like really kind of complacent area, but it's also this fascinating story at the same time. She kind of has these two um, this like really dichotomous way of writing that I I really enjoy. And she also had a novel that was adapted as a TV series, Station Eleven. Yeah. Station Eleven, a great TV show. I recommend that TV show as well. That that's so well made, so well acted. That that show has so many great things about it. They changed so much from the book. It's that's interesting. I I, I struggle with it because I love the plot of the book, and they changed so much of the plot for the TV show of that. That I, I I'd love to talk to the filmmakers and ask why because I don't know what it necessarily did. It was good, but I don't know necessarily what it did. But it was it's a really great TV show. William Gibson said about the TV adaptation of The Peripheral that it's a stub of a book. So it's not the book, it's part of the book that's been, something's been done with. And I think with a long novel like that, you don't have any other choice. And if it's successful, it's successful on its own rather than as just a reproduction of the novel. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, it's really interesting because you can, with TV show, you, I mean, even with big books, you can explore a lot. Like, look at Asimov's Foundation. I mean, HBO, I think, no, Apple? Apple. HBO, I think. Apple, Apple. Apple. Um, but again, they're making it their own, but it's not that they don't have the time. So it's a, it's really interesting to um, to see what they're doing. Again, it's just part of the translation when you have to translate something into a visual medium off of the page. Okay, Caitlin Munro-House, your novel is The Awoken. I thank you very much. All the best. I'm looking forward to the TV series. Thank you so much. If you like the podcast, please follow it in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. To learn more about Scrivener, go to scrivenerapp.com. Join us next month for another conversation on Right Now with Scrivener.